Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi. Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Roberto. Good morning, Yusuf. Good morning, listeners. And uh, we want to start by saying big thank you to our uh, listeners who donated to Palestine Remembered last week. How good was it? Because, I mean, every, every dollar counts. Every It's not about the dollar. It's about the intent and the thought. Yep. But the fact that we could engage with the people was fantastic. I was on a high for the rest of the day. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So well, thank you very much to the generous people. Although I had a bit of a tough start of the day. Well, but I enjoyed it. Because you had to get up, let's make it obvious here. You actually had to get up early in the morning. I was so. dragged out of my home. By you were. You but, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. And uh, again, I want to thank our listeners, those who donated, those who called us. It was amazing, like you said, uh, Robert, to, to talk to them on the show. So, uh, And uh, this week we are going to... Uh, you are going to take us to Hebron, uh, Robert. Yes, yeah, so, so back last year in November, I, I spent some time in Palestine, as, as people know, and spent time in Hebron. And I spent time with a magnificent gentleman by the name of Hisham Shadabati. He's a tour guide. So not only is he a tour guide, but he also is the coordinator at the Hebron Defence <laughs> Committee. And he took me on a throughout Hebron, different parts of Hebron. But then afterwards we discussed his life as a Palestinian living in Palestine and living under occupation, spent time in jail. I asked how it affects his life and he explains it. And it's very, very moving. Uh, And if people knew what he knew and knew his story, we wouldn't have these issues Mm. uh, in in Palestine because it's barbaric. And uh, we're talking about a city where a few hundred uh, settlers protected by thousands of soldiers, poison the life of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. They do, and their job is there to make life as difficult as they can for the Palestinians. The Israelis can walk through anywhere they want Mm. through there, Mm. and they have the protection not only of settlers and ammunition and their own guns, but also the soldiers, whereas Palestinians will get asked for ID checks. Mm. Issa Amaro got asked for a number of times for his IDs, and he lives there. So mm. the soldiers know who he is. But this is part of how I can denigrate you. Mm. I'm going to do this to you because I am the powerful one. Horrible. Also, uh, we don't want to spoil the interview, but uh, Al-Khalil uh, Hebron is known of its worst uh, settlers. Yeah, and there was two executions that happened not long before I was there. Um, and Hisham will explain... Uh, what happened and the ramifications and the after, aftermath, I suppose. Robert, before we go to the interview, tell us where 
the interview uh, took place. So the interview takes place at a shisha bar just outside Hebron, where yeah, the major gates are. Music. You see, you can hear yeah. some, you know, jingling of of the glasses and, yes. and so forth. The uncle Thum singing. So, but just outside the old city, which is you know pretty vibrant, because they've closed down the main city, the old city. So if mm. that makes sense. Coming up is uh, Robert's uh, interview with uh, Hisham Sharabati from Al Khalil, Hebron. Stay with us. I'm, uh, I'm in Hebron with a magnificent man that actually took me for a tour that shocked me today. I was in Hebron a few days ago and saw a few things, but again, as I walk through, I am totally shocked. So, introduce yourself. How long have you been in Palestine and how does the occupation affect you? My friendly terrorist. <laughs> uh, I'm Hisham Sharabati, a Hebronite. Uh, I've lived all my life here with little, very little exceptions, like to study or to be in Israeli detention. So you've been in detention? 16 months. 16, what was that for? Uh, for being a political activist. Uh, for, be, for, for example, for participating in demonstrations. Uh, so doing what uh, I'm doing, basically. Uh, actually, uh, I've been in uh, those 16 months, they were like not on one time, like six times. Now, uh, of course, I'm not counting like the small two, three days thing, you know. But then, like, uh, I have 18 days, uh, and then uh, other 18 days, and then other 18 days, and that was uh, interrogation. And then uh, four months, uh, no, uh, six months as an administrative detainee, which is detention without a trial. And then uh, other four, uh, four months where they got some children, tortured them, and forced them to testify against me. Uh, and when you, when you say torture, what do they do? Torture. Whatever you can imagine. So sometimes it's no light, sometimes it's too much light, sometimes it's... Uh, you know, uh, like, uh, in, like in some of my arrests, mainly the, the, the interrogation... Being interrogated in Israeli prison uh, simply is equivalent to torture in a way or another. Or like maybe, maybe like 99% of the Palestinians who have been uh, arrested by the Israeli authorities, they have uh, faced uh, some kind of uh, torture or ill treatment uh, and uh, torture uh, varies. Uh, between uh, one level to another but it's not a secret that uh, we have tens of Palestinians lost their lives during Israeli interrogation uh, while being interrogated that's something. the other thing very important is that torture is legal by the Israeli law and it is uh, uh, categorized as uh, moderate physical pressure you know that's how it is uh, represented and uh, 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 according to the Israeli law, uh, if uh, the Israeli security believes some, that somebody is uh, what they call a ticking bomb, that uh, you know he have information that may cause uh, some people dead, then it is allowed to practice moderate physical pressure on him. For example, uh, I remember in my first detention when I was 17, uh, I had a black sack in my head. Uh, and I was forced to stand for like 22 hours a day and being handcuffed to, with my hands to the back. Uh, with the sack on your head the whole time? Yes. And then like I used to slip while standing. You know, sometimes like my uh, knee will 
bent, like I'm about to fall to sleep. It'll give way. To sleep standing, yeah. and then I just wake up uh, again. You were arrested for doing what I'm doing, which is non-violent, uh, just protesting. Yeah, for uh, demonstrations only. So nothing. Uh, you know, what are you saying? You, you got beaten? I was deprived of uh, sleeping. I was beaten badly. Um, slapped uh, in one of uh, my detentions uh, my, uh, the drum of my ear was torn apart because I was slapped by both hands like into here so that makes uh, air pressure inside so that caused the air pressure that tore uh, the drum of my ear and I had difficulty listening for hearing for like two three months till it healed because I was much younger so it worked so one soldier did that, just came up on An interrogator. An interrogator. Israeli intelligence officer. You know. Uh, one time, uh, like, they forced me to sit on uh, the ground and then uh, put my, uh, my uh, feet up uh, a, a chair and then they beat me to the bottom of my feet with very heavy stick till it was a slow, a swollen, like, uh, three size, three double of its size. And uh, for example, in this one, I ha I was uh, not about uh, allow, uh, uh, not able to even stand for a second for four days, <clears throat> and all this is nothing, as I said, compared to the torture is uh, not the interrogation itself. Like uh, they want you to to spend very hard time, uh, like during the process. Tell, tell me. Tell me what it's like for being a Palestinian in Hebron under occupation. Uh, it varies actually between one person to another. Like for a Palestinian who is born in the old city, you know, that means you go every time you go in or out of your house, you have to go through an Israeli checkpoint. Uh, you are subjected to being humiliated, uh, being searched, delayed. And sometimes even denied entry to your house, you know, because somebody else says you are not allowed to. But then if you live in this neighborhood, for example, uh, as you see, these people are enjoying their time here, many of them, and many of them, they know nothing about that part of the city. Many of them has never been there because they are afraid. It's their own city. It is very close, but either their families or themselves don't want to go there because they don't want to be subjected to this uh, f to these forms of treatment. Can I go in there? You can go in these places. These people. Can I go into the main city of Hebron? To you the, to the Ibrahim Mosque? They want. Many of them they don't go. Like lots of teenagers, adult people, like even grown-up people, like people who are 40 or 50 or even more. Like you ask them when was the last time you have been to the old city? He will tell you like five years, mainly the mosque. Like uh, some people will tell you like for the past 20 years, we haven't been to the mosque. You, you meet somebody who is 20 years old and you ask him, have you ever been to the Ibrahimi mosque? And they will tell you no. Because there's been a lot of murders there too from the Israeli Exactly, soldiers. mainly the last two years. Uh, now in the last two years, uh, as uh, you know, like we lost lots of residents. The people who live there has moved out because they are worried of the lives of their uh, loved ones and then the people who live uh, out of it they are worried and they don't want their children and daughters to go there 
because they are so much worried that they may get arrested, you know, or maybe they may get shot because it's worse. Sometimes they say, okay, if they are arrested. But Tell me about the, the murders that have happened down there. The, the murders. murders. The murders is, uh, you know, Hebron in the last two years, the most two cities have lost people was Jerusalem and Hebron. And uh, it's simply, we have settlers within the city and we have more tense uh, situation within the two cities. Maybe Hebron is a little bit more uh, worse than Jerusalem uh, because at least theoretically Jerusalem is under Israeli civic law. There's nothing civil about it though if you're Palestinian. Yeah, exactly. Uh, only in theory, as I said, theoretically. In Hebron it's under Israeli direct military laws. Uh, those soldiers uh, feel that uh, they have lots of power. Each one of them feels that he represents the law, or the law is what he says. And uh, they don't feel that uh, they will face any kind of accountability. Because they don't. Of course they don't. That's why they have the feeling, uh, you know. Uh, they are, like, uh, everything that uh, they commit is covered either by their superior uh, military officers or by their uh, the political level. And, uh, like, if we talk to the example of Hadil Hashlamoun, the girl that came into the checkpoint north of Shada Street at the 20th of September uh, 2015, you know, she came in and she was murdered by soldiers. Who, the soldiers opened the, um, maybe 10 bullets uh, on her, claiming that she tried to stab one of them. Uh, like my findings was that she had a knife on her, but she did not uh, try to stab anyone. And she was murdered on her way out of the checkpoint and th when there was a metal barricade between the soldiers and her. Now, the Israeli official investigation got into the same conclusion after nearly two months. The same conclusion that I got in the first two days. Um, the Israeli army published their investigation and when they published it, uh, or when it was in the media, of course, they published parts of it and they said that uh, according to the investigation that the army has done, uh, the, the soldiers were able to control her, uh, you know, without using live ammunition. And so they say that they killed her for nothing. And then they continue because of the special situation or the unique situation of Hebron, they would not face any kind of uh, consequences. You know, or any penalties, and then this is a license to kill. It is uh, simply. So there was another one. Uh, well, I was saying, you know, if the, if these soldiers are not even facing minor disciplinary action, you know, prevented, de deprived from a vacation, home vacation, or being arrested for a short period or detained in a military base, they faced nothing for you know for killing someone, uh, you know, uh, and. Uh, a, a young girl, uh, you know, in the beginnings of her life, a university student in her first year of university, just lo lost her life. And then they would face nothing. And there was another murder where Emad got the video, live on video. Now, this video is maybe one of the most famous, or maybe the most famous within the Palestinian-Israeli conflict now. And uh, you know that uh, it is, was very clear that uh, an Israeli soldier shot a Palestinian bleeding that was not causing any risk for he anyone. Couldn't move. He couldn't move. And then he was shot uh, directly in the, to the brain 
from like three to five meters uh, distance. Now the soldier was sent to trial, as everybody know, and then he was accused of manslaughter. That's from the beginning. The charge was manslaughter, not deliberate uh, murder. And then he was sentenced one and a half year, and then he applies for uh, an amnesty from the chief of staff of the Israeli army. And the chief of staff decides to reduce four months of his 18 months sentence. And then uh, it is well known that recently there are lots of Jewish holidays. He have vacations to go home in, within the Jewish holidays. And in the Israeli law, he can apply for dropping one third. And then there is another way of dropping the sentence, which is uh, what they call it minhala, which is uh, it gives uh, the authority to the director of the officer of the prison for administrative reasons to drop certain period of arrest and release someone because it is crowded or for good behavior or something. I'm sure that he will not spend even the 14 months that they talk about. But if we take in consideration all the Jewish holidays that he goes out and so on, it will be much less. I tell you something. Many years ago, during what we call the first intifada, uh, the Israeli uh, settler, the founder of the Jewish community of Hebron, the settlements in Hebron, his name was uh, Rabbi Moshe Lavinger. He killed a Palestinian merchant in the center of town. He was sentenced six months. And how did he kill him? Shot him? He shot him dead. You know, he was sentenced six months. Then they dropped one third, according to the law. So that was four months. And then every Jewish holiday, and even the Sabbath holidays, he would spend in his home. So it means he was in prison two and a half months for killing a Palestinian man. Now, Palestinian kids, minors, if they throw rocks that did not hurt anyone, can spend much more than that in Israeli prisons. And what about that settler that lives behind that family today, who you were telling me about, he was one of the founding members, uh, he was one of the first settlers there, the one that throws the washing machine and cut all the roads off? Baruch Marzel, a very famous uh, racist person, not only against Palestinians, by the way, Marzel used to take his fellow rightist people to South Tel Aviv, where the African immigrants uh, are mainly, uh, you know, stationed. And he goes there and makes demonstrations and intimidates them. And he wants to deport them, like trying to pressure the government to throw them out. Because according to him, they threaten the Jewish identity of the state. Uh, he's, uh, of course, he's very anti-Palestinians. And he is... As I said, uh, like Marzel for, has registered himself uh, uh, during the Israeli elections to the Israeli parliament to be the head of the polling station in the most conservative Palestinian-Israeli town in Israel called Imm al-Fahim. Uh, so Marzel in his house, there is a British documentary called Inside God's Bunker. Now, they show Marzel in his house where he have a sticker in his room that says, I've already killed an Arab, and you? I mean, that, that, if, if we, I mean, that's incitement. But if we flipped that around and a Palestinian had something like that, what would happen to him and his family? Look, if you come to Palestine, you see that we are ghettoized. We are mistreated only because we are Palestinians. Now, one time, friends, uh, activists of friends of mine in Bethlehem they got pajamas with the 
uh, you know, the columns on them. And the stripes. Yeah. Nazi Germany. And they demonstrated with them. Complete peacefully. They were arrested and they were charged because of this. And spent time in jail. Yeah. But he has a poster in his room. That says up. directly, I've already killed an Arab and you? As, as a Palestinian, I mean, it's colonialism. That has to be the word, doesn't it? Apartheid and colonialism. It is. Uh, you know, during the years of the occupation, Israel has developed a system of colonization and racism within not only the West Bank, but only within Israel. Uh, you know, like if you go to the Negev in the south of Israel, uh, you see Bedouin towns that are facing home demolition. Or, or the Palestinians all over Israel, they face the home demolition policy. Now, one of the worst, maybe, or the very sarcastic things is that sometimes you are a Bedouin, you join the Israeli army, you escort an Israeli bulldozer in the West Bank that destroys a Palestinian home, and then you go back and find your own house destroyed. And that happened? It happened, yes. In one of the Bedouin communities, they have a small club. It's called the Bedouin Soldiers Club. It was destroyed because of illegal construction. So not only are they facilitating the occupation and the colonialism, they got home and they... If you are non-Jew, then there is a big question mark about your citizenship and loyalty to the state. Part of the debate within Israel amongst the Palestinians, for example, is that some Palestinians say that we should join the Israeli army. We should pay equal duties to get equal rights. Now, the Palestinians who oppose this policy, they say, look our, uh, at our fellow Bedouins and look at the Duruz who serve in the Israeli army. And for example, the urban plans for their villages and towns has never been uh, enlarged because of natural growth since the state was found in, founded in 1948, while the state is all the time building new village cities and villages and so on. And uh, they serve in the army, they pay taxes, and they get their homes, uh, their land confiscated, or at least they are not allowing to grow. While at the meantime, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, who don't serve in the Israeli army, they get equal rights. So your citizenship and your rights in Israel is not based on your citizenship. It's not based whether you pay your duties as a citizen or not. It's based whether you are a Jew or not. Simply, as I said, if you are an ultra-Orthodox Jews, you don't serve in the army, but then you get equal rights with other Jews. But if you are a Palestinian, if you are a Bedouin, if you are a Druze, you serve in the Israeli army, but for example, you may face your house destroyed, you will get much less at least than what the Jews get. Tell me about the uh, the water problem. Because I've heard you so many, many times and I've heard a lot of people say that we have, I mean, water's life. Look, when we talk about Hebron and the water problem in Hebron, I will describe it to you, but it is nothing compared to what is going in Gaza. Yes. Now, in Hebron uh, and, and all over the West Bank, the Israelis control the water resources within the West Bank. Now, they pump the water from the water aquifers, they pump it into Israel, they pump into it into the settlements, and they sell us part of it. It's our water, and they sell us part of it. Do you, do you pay the same amount? We pay money for it. 
we have you, to pay them. You pay more than what they do, even though uh, it's your water. I'm not sure uh, about the prices, but uh, uh, I think we pay high uh, relatively. Yeah. So now, because of the amount of water that they give us is small, especially in the summer, like we have July and August are the worst uh, period of getting water. Sometimes uh, during all July and all August, people don't get water in their networks. Now, what happens is that the municipality, because of the short amount of water that we get, they stop pumping it through the network. And so if anybody wants water, or they reduce the pumping through the network, and then if anybody is in need in water, he can go to the municipality and can buy a water tank. Why do they do it? It's because then that means people who are in need of water will go and get it. Because otherwise, like some people maybe, you know, use much water than others. Of course. Bigger families. and Exactly. Know. So, uh, for example, if I run out of water, I can go to the municipality, pay the little extra, get a water truck to my house, a water tank, and then I have a cistern in my house where in winter I try to harvest as much as possible rainwater and save it and then put that in my cistern or pump it to my water tanks, the many water tanks in the roofs. Now we have in Hebron 12 kilometers of roads and these are areas with lots of population. Palestinians are not allowed to drive there, so we cannot get water tanks. You cannot drive on those roads. Exactly. So if those people run out of water, they cannot do what I do. They cannot go to the municipality and buy a water tank because the water tank on the, the truck cannot go into their areas. So what is their alternative? They go to their relatives' homes who live out of the area. They put smaller uh, plastic containers like one and a half liter bottles or four liter bottles or maximum 20 liters bottles and they put them, pile them in a taxi and boxes and go to the closest checkpoints and get all the family members to carry them or get a handy trolley to put them in another box and push them into the house uh, on a handy trolley. Then like, do you imagine like getting all your water for your all house needs in bottles? No, okay. How do you clean the toilets? how you wash the house, the floors, how you have showers, washing the dishes, uh, drinking, cooking, all this. And we have very hot summer yeah. also. You need to have showers three times a day sometimes. That's what you do. So, yeah. I need then, one. Here, sometimes, I tell you, people have uh, with this a problem, like that they give their children uh, a shower once a week or yeah. bi-weekly. And also, so, especially also, you were telling me, within uh, this season within Hebron because you've got the water tanks that often, especially during the last intifada, the soldiers were shooting holes, taking pot shots from up high. That was the game. So it was a game to put holes in the water tanks. Yeah, the soldiers are stationed on rooftops of Palestinian homes and then shooting water tanks on the rooftop of other Palestinian as a game. Yes, yes. I tell you, it was worse actually during the first intifada, the second intifada. Curfew was imposed the three years in the old city. Now there were soldiers who used to, their game was to shoot an electric transformer that sends electricity into the old city. So to the whole city. Yeah, to the old city. To but, the old city. But that's to the but, whole city. And then yes. It goes to all they, the houses. They shoot it and then they break it. So when it is broken. It needs the municipality long time to go and fix it because of curfew. They need to coordinate with the Israelis 
and at that time the PA will not have contacts with the Israelis. So have to, they have to talk to international bodies like the International Committee of the Red Cross or the Temporary International Presence in Hebron to talk to the Israelis to let them go and do it. So they would go and fix it and then the soldiers would do it again. Now what happened, I remember it was kind of a game, then the municipality got very thick uh, metal panels and they put them around the transformer for some time. And then soldiers, I told you earlier, they have different levels of guns that time. Sometimes they have very big uh, yes. guns like and cannons and, uh, you know, I told you, they put the artillery at the top of Terromeda. So they still continue shooting it. Uh, it didn't work. This this may was make it harder for the soldiers, but they still... And then the, at the end, the, electricity, the, the local council moved it somewhere else. So they were forced to move it. Yeah. That was Hisham Sharabati in Hebron speaking with me. So thanks very much for listening. Have a great weekend. And yes, sir, we will see you next Saturday, same time, 9.30 in the morning. Until then, this is Robert and Yusuf. Take care. Wishing you the best of time. Salam.